reading this afternoon will turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 73. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, and my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to this desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand, and you will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. This far the reading of God's holy word. This morning we heard that life does not consist in the things that we possess. And the very fact of the frailty of our own life and the decay and the uh, that we see around us in this world, the fleeting nature of riches and, and all that we see breaking down in this world, it reminds us of that fact and it should turn us away 
from these things to find a lasting desire and a lasting hope which is found in God alone. And Asaph, in a psalm that we read in verse 25, says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on this earth that I desire besides you. And yet when you look at this world, there seems to be so much that's, that you want that you think is worth pursuing in this world, so much to desire in this world. So how does Asaph come to this conclusion? He says that he has no desire on this earth apart from God. That's a strong statement. Because how often do we go around in our life pursuing our desires without even a thought about God? Hardly thinking and remembering that there is a God in the decisions that we make and in the things that we pursue. But here, for Asaph, he learned that God is your all, your everything, when there really is nothing left but God. And so our theme for this afternoon is desire for God. Desire for God. And we'll have two thoughts. First, nothing to be desired on earth. And secondly, everything to be desired in God. And each of these thoughts will have four thoughts underneath it. So first then, nothing to be desired on earth. There is none upon the earth that I desire besides you, is what Asaph left. He said there is nothing left in this world for him to desire. Even, he said, without God, even the most attractive things in this life are nothing to him. They have no appeal to him. Well, how did he come to that conclusion? How did he learn that? Well, he had to learn it by experience. He says, and he confesses in verse 1 and 2, that he, I almost slipped. I almost stumbled. He confesses, I saw that glamour of the world, what the world offers, and he, he said, I thought I needed that to be happy. I almost fell for that. Until God showed me how empty it all is. And so our first thought here then is Asaph saw that there's nothing to, be de to desire in the ease and the prosperity of this earth. Nothing to desire in the ease and prosperity of the earth. He says he was tempted to become envious of the wicked when he saw how they were living. Remember this morning we... We said covetousness starts with seeing. In verse 3, verse 3, he shows that he, he, he saw the prosperity of the, of the wicked. In verse 4, he saw that they had no concern for death. There seems to be a strength and a determination in these people. They, they, they seem firm in their, in their life. Nothing seems to stop them. In verse 5, it says they have a life of ease. They don't seem to be troubled with the affliction that God's people are. They, they don't seem to be plagued with sickness. Verse 6, their pride and their arrogance even seem to advance and promote them in this life. It's almost like their pride is an adornment to them. It's a way to advance their way in, uh, to success in this world. Violence and force are used to climb up that ladder of success. And Asaph says, I became envious. I was jealous. Why can they live without a care in this life? Why can they eat, drink, and be merry? And because tomorrow we die. So they seem to live without a regard for, for anything. 
And he confesses, I was tempted to become envious of them. I wish I could live carefree. But in verse 17, he says, then I understood their end. Verse 18, he says, you have set them in slippery places. You cast them to destruction in a moment. He sees that the wicked are standing in, a slippery, in slippery places. And this is where he says, I nearly slipped. I nearly went down that same slope of destruction by trying to follow them. But the pride and the, and the arrogance are a stench in God's nostrils. And so he saw that there's nothing to the ease in this world that is to be desired. But then the second thought is, Asaph saw there's nothing in the possessions of this earth to be desired. Even if, we start, even if we hate the pride and the arrogance of the people that we see in this world, we can still be tempted to, to cover the things that they have. And he says, I was, he, he has this in a psalm, attempted, he was attempted to, to cover the, the belongings that they have, their success and their abundance. In verse 7, he, he notices that they're all stuffed. He says they're, they're bulging in the eyes with abundance, more than their hearts could desire. In some places in Africa, they, they look upon people that are overweight as, as being successful. They have enough food, and, and so that's a sign of success. Sometimes when they come to America, they want to make sure they put on enough weight to go home to, to show how good they had it. And here, that's the, kind of the image. Their eyes are bulging with, with abundance. In verse 8, they boast of their success. They scoff and they ridicule at the righteous. And they boast of their business success and of their investment strategies, and they're busy counting their, their money so they can retire and travel. And they speak against heaven, it says in verse 9. Their tongues walk through the earth. They're filled with slander and with gossip and with backbiting and bearing false witness so that they can advance in this world. And they continue to devour and consume, verse 10 says. They seem to have it all, and yet they want to get more and more. More homes, more toys, more trucks, more vacations. And they're advancing over the back of other people. And he says, you're tempted to covet the things that they have. We want some of those things too. But then he remembers, God says, beware of covetousness. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And Asaph says, I nearly slipped. I nearly slipped when I began to covet what they had. And then thirdly, Asaph saw that there's nothing in this godless society to desire anymore. He hears them speaking against his God. And notice in the psalm that the wicked do not even dare to say that there is no God, but they say, how does God know? They don't want God to know because they know he will not approve. But God delays His punishment. And because nothing happens, they think they can continue on without consequence. Verse 11, they say, Is there no knowledge in the Most High? They begin to think God can't do anything or God can't see what they're doing. In verse 12, that mindset, they continue on in their sin. And the ungodly are at ease and, and, and they increase in their riches. They think their life consist in the abundance of what they possess. That's all they know. That's all they have. That's all they can desire. One goal and one path in this life to amass riches to themselves. 
we see enough examples in our own day. This week I was, I, was, I heard the, the, the quote from Elon Musk. He's a man who seems to have everything going for him in this world. He has wealth and he has reputation, but he mocks with God. And he mocks with death. And he said, he himself, he said that he was likely going to hell if that was, and he'd be okay with going to hell if that was his destination. So consumed with, with his life and its ease without God and without eternal life. And Asaph says, I almost stumbled. I almost slipped down this path as well until I understood what God, that, that God will cast him down to destruction suddenly. But there's one more thing Asaph points out. Fourthly, he says that there's nothing to desire in ourselves in this world. Asaph, Asaph saw that he himself was tempted to doubt God. And someone responded to this quote from Elon Musk online. And he said, well, smart people don't believe in God because they read the Bible and they know it doesn't make any sense. They can't make any sense of it. So it must not be true. And so also many questions can rise in our hearts, in our minds. Why is everything going good for the wicked so often when they blaspheme God? Doesn't God see the wicked? Doesn't God see what we are going through? Doesn't God hear me? And so Asaph said he was tempted to think that godliness was useless. What's the use of living godly? Why can't we just loosen up and live it up? That's what verse 13 says. It's all useless. Useless to cleanse our heart and our hands from sin. And so he said, we can't figure these things out. Verse 14, does God see what is happening to me? And if God is real, why is this happening? Why does God allow certain things to enter our life? And Asaph tried to make sense of it. He couldn't reason it out. And it left him perplexed. He says even the effort of it in verse 16 was too painful to even consider. The wicked seem to prosper, but the righteous seem to be afflicted. But then he says in verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their end. Asaph here was taught to see not only the end of the wicked, but the sin of his own heart. And he was grieved, verse 12. He was vexed by his own troubled thoughts. He realized that he could not understand God's ways because he was soured by his own covetousness and his bitterness of envy. He saw that there was passionate discontentment in his heart, that he was blinded by his sin. And so he confessed, in verse 22, his, his ignorance and his foolishness. He says, we're led astray by our own sin, looking at the outward appearance of this world, looking what we see in this world. And Asaph had to experience how little we know God and how little we understand His ways and how much we really do desire the things of this world. And he says he was driven by those animal passions, the worldly-mindedness. What can we get to make me happy in this world now? And so he realizes there really is nothing in, this, in ourselves to desire because we are prone to sin. 
so easily led astray, guided by your own sinful desires, held captive by the attractions of this world. And so the conclusion he comes up with, that this was a a very fast-paced speed through through this first part of the Psalms, but it shows us how he comes to the conclusion that there is nothing to desire in this world, nothing to be desired that the wicked have, nothing to be desired in their own hearts, because it's all sin and it's all wickedness. But it brings us then to the second thought, but everything to be desired in God. And under here we'll also see four thoughts. And he points out that for our soul, there is only one desirable object. Nothing on this earth can satisfy our soul except God. And that's why Asaph says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. When Asaph saw that this world had nothing of eternal value to offer, and then he realized he had nothing left but God. And God becomes his all when all we have is God. And we, and we must love God above all. That's, that's what he has created us for. That's what his commandments teach us. And anything less is idolatry. But in this life, that, that truth and that reality can remain so hidden. And we lose sight of God so easily because we're so focused on the temporal things of this life that we see rather than the eternal realities that lie beyond. And so then, first here in the second thought, we Asaph learned that everything to be, devir- to be desired is found in God because he guides me in the right paths in verse 24. God will guide you with his counsel. Where did Asaph finally find the answers to his questions? He said that in verse 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I understood their end. All that this world can do is draw us away from God. The prosperity of the wicked pulls on our desires to covet their wealth. Their way of life tempts us even to doubt God. Our own afflictions cause us to despair of life. But he says, God guides me with his counsel. And after, and and often that, that, that guiding is through the pathways of affliction. You can think of Job. Job was a righteous man, and yet he lost everything. He lost his business, he lost his family, even his wife was against him and he lost his health but God used it to lead Job into a deeper knowledge of himself and our life can be so consumed with the things of this earth and of this, of this life that we can't see God we don't desire God because our time and our mind are so filled with this world we're not able to say as Asaph does here that there is nothing on this earth that we desire besides God. God needs to guide us in his counsel to show us that our hearts are set on this perishing world and he needs to set our heart entirely on himself. And this word guide here, it means to lead with authority, to lead us to understand 
His Word. He needs to wean us off of this world. Yes, He supplies our our daily need, but He also prevents us from being consumed by the desires of the things of this world. And so at times He might take away our business. And then where is our boasting? As the wicked had. But then we see that God is the one who provides. At times he might need to take away that retiring saving, the retirement savings from under us and ask, who will we trust in now? Where is your security laid up? There may be trouble in our marriage or in our family. He may take away our health and we become dependent on others. Where then is our pride or our self-righteousness? What good then does anything in this world do for us? Even our very life and our breath are in His hands. But He guides you through these paths to show us that everything in this life is passing. And God makes us to consider our end, to make us see how frail we are. And that makes us cry out, does it not? Guide me, lead me, in the way of truth. Lead me away from from the evil because I'm so prone to stumble into sin and to slip into the paths of this world. It makes us cry, uphold me for I'm ready to faint under these afflictions and these trials. Lead me then safely through them because I can't see where I am going. And then God says, walk in this way because this is where you learn what Asaph learned. Verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. And that's something we cannot see anywhere except in God's Word and when He brings it home to our hearts. You guide me with your counsel. It's God who leads you through these paths, holding you by your right hand. That word here, holding, means grasping tightly. And it's in a perfect sense. That means it's, he grabbed it in the past and he continues to hold it on, hold on to it, and he will not let go. He holds your hand to direct you. Your right hand is, is that hand of authority, but God is controlling even your hand of authority and leads you with his authority. He holds you firmly. And those paths, sometimes they can be so dark and so, and so deep, and you cannot see where they're going or where you, you are. But God says, look at me and don't look at the wicked because I will lead you safely onwards. He has that hold on you that he will not let go because that's a hold that is secured in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And through Christ, we are united to God by faith. Do not let me go. Hold me up and lead me with thy counsel. And the second thing that Asaph learned is that everything is to be, des- to be desired is found in God because He is my strength, in verse 26. That even though my heart and my flesh fail, God is my strength. Because it's especially during these times that, that our heart fails for grief and our flesh fails in strength. And we begin to realize that we are nothing. Then the, pro, the boasting and the pride and the arrogance of the wicked cannot help. We know they are nothing. There's no boasting left when our body struggles with our health. 
It struggles simply to remain alive. There's no desire for the pleasures or the possessions of this world because nothing can help you. Nothing can give you life. Your life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess. What can all the money in the world provide for your soul? But my heart and my flesh fail. That means my entire being, my body and soul are failing me. I cannot depend upon it. I cannot even preserve it in life. Even friends and family stand helplessly by. Job's own wife was actually against him. But the scripture says when other helpers fail, God will hear. Verse 26b, but God is the strength of my heart. And there in those quiet hours of the night, or even the lonely hours of the day, God says, or Asaph says, I am continually with you. I am with God. Why? Because he is holding me with my right hand. God is there as you meditate on his word. God is there for his people. And who can uphold your soul in those dark hours but God alone? It's only God who can lift up your soul when it is in those dark moments. It's God's grace alone and God alone who gives the breath and life and all things. And so Asaph says in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you because nothing else can strengthen my heart. Nothing else can preserve my life. And then there's no more desire for the things of this world because Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. God is the strength of my heart. He is my rock. That's what this word means here. That immovable rock and foundation and strength. Christ is my rock and my salvation. As Psalm 118 says, The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. And then thirdly, Asaph learned that everything to be desired is found in God because he is my portion forever. My flesh, in verse 26, my flesh and heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word portion means share, his possession forever. Christ not only provides us with that eternal inheritance that does not fade away, but Christ is the portion of his people. He is your life. He is your salvation. On this earth, nothing lasts. Everything rusts or decays. Money is spent and flies away. The rich young ruler, he turned away from Christ to try to hold on to that money a little while longer. But the time of death will come when those hands will no longer be able to hold any of those possessions. Our hands will not be able to grasp anything anymore. Our hearts can no longer desire anything then anymore. And what will it profit if we gain the whole world and lose our own soul? And we'll be left with no possessions and no Christ. But what a blessing then when God shows us the emptiness of it all and that we can let it go even now. Because then we can see Christ as a pearl of great price. 
And then we learn to say as well that there's nothing on this earth that I can desire besides God because He is my portion. He is my possession. He is my life. He is my all. And even if I have to lose everything in this world like Job, I still have more than heart can desire because Christ is my portion forever. If God is the only desirable object of your faith, and I have no desire on this earth apart from God. And every decision will be guided with His counsel, with the desire for God to guide you in it. And then if, then if God is not in that relationship, then you have no desire to continue in it. And if God is not in that business transaction, then you have no desire to pursue it. If God is not there, if God is not your portion, then what value does the things of this life and time have? And Asa found the answers to his perplexity when he went into the sanctuary of God. That is where God guides you. That is where He upholds you. That is where He reveals to you that He is your portion forever. But then fourthly, Asaph learned that everything to be desired is found in God because He will bring me into eternal glory. Verse 24b. Verse 23 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. You will receive me to glory. If God is your portion here on earth, you are continually with God. He will guide you through this life, even if it is through a valley of affliction. Here our earth, the sinful desires are broken and our heart is, is weaned from the earth until there is nothing left to desire in this world but God. And afterwards, He shall receive me into glory. That means not just to receive passively, but to take into heaven. Like God took up Enoch and God took up Elijah. And notice here, Asaph says, Me, God will receive even me into glory. Someone who is so weak, someone who is so foolish, so ignorant of God's mercy and goodness, so prone to sin, so prone to wandering from God, so prone to desire the passing treasures of this world. But God is the one who holds me tightly. He will guide me. He will strengthen me and afterwards receive me into glory, into the glory of His own presence. Then faith will be made sight. Then the real desires of the heart will be filled Psalm 37 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he, he shall give you the desires of your heart. As the end of sin is death, and the wicked, it says, shall be cast down to destruction. Those whose desires are in this world will perish with the world and come to a sudden end. But Asaph says, Who have I in heaven but you? In eternal glory, your desires will be filled with God. 
then there will be nothing else to desire. Because in heaven there will be no more sin, no more coveting, no more craving, no more lusting, no more wicked people to look at and to, to envy and to be jealous of, no more grudges, no more resentment against others who have more than us. But then you'll be fully satisfied with the fullness that God provides. And nothing will draw your desires away from God anymore. No pleasure, no prosperity can kindle your desires anymore. But then He is your all. Whom have I in heaven but you? In God you'll be fully satisfied. And there's nothing upon earth that I can desire besides you. Is God your everything? Verse 27 says, All the wicked will be destroyed. But verse 28 says, But it is good for me to draw near to God. You are drawn by your desires. Your desires will draw you to your object of your desire. Is it good for you to draw near to God? Is He the one and the only object of your desire? Or can anything else on this earth replace God and satisfy you instead of Him? Oh, Asaph came to this conclusion. It is good for me to draw near to God. Amen.